0: Thank you very much for me. Always wonderful to be here. I come for the introductions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as uh, Ray Friedman said, he was a member, I think, of the, was it the first or the second year, first or second year of a program that is now entering its 24th year, I think. Um, and I hope that you'll, it's a six week full time based meddersh in uh, basically a halakhic process, but you also get lots of opportunities to teach. Uh, you have to write a tshuva on the topic we do at the end of the summer. Uh, if you like being challenged intellectually, I hope that um, you'll express your interest um, either to me by email or by Friedman, and he'll, he'll be in touch with me or by assessment. Uh, there will also be a sign-up sheet circulated at some point where, if you, if you like this year, I send out a weekly um, Torah essay, some, loosely related to the Parsha sometimes. Um, and so if you're interested in receiving that, please sign up with your name and email address. you also get information about the various other programs that we run. The name of the organization is the Center for Modern Torah Leadership, the, um, and you can see the website on the page, torahleadership.org. Okay, so I picked the cheap, catchy title, The Impeachment of Raman Gamliel, um, right, so it so would all be in the news. Maybe you're so totally isolated here in Israel you haven't heard that the impeachment of, uh, of presidents of a society uh, is a hot-button issue. Uh, I want to go through an agarata that um, probably many of you, several agaratas that probably many of you have seen about the topic. We'll start off by looking at it probably in the way in which, when you saw it previously, you thought about it. And then we'll try to raise a certain number of problems with the way in which you might previously have understood it. And then we'll try to blow the whole thing up. And when we try to blow the whole thing up, we'll try and try and radically transform your understanding of it. That would be the ambition. And in the process of doing that, I hope that will make you think about both issues, about what it means to read a Gata properly, and what it means to think about Torah properly. Those are very ambitious aims that we'll try and pull them off. Okay. If you have questions, feel free to uh, ask them during the share. Uh, at some point, if it looks like we'll run out of time, if I don't, uh, if I don't, if I take too many questions, then the goal generally of the share is to leave you wanting more. Uh, so you, if you walk out frustrated, that's fine. And you're also welcome. I'll stay afterwards and answer questions if you want, uh, if you want as well. When you raise your hand, do please, to, please do introduce yourself, especially if you're embarrassed, if because you're from Boston, I won't, I don't recognize you. Um, okay, so I start with the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, um, which is a, a story you've probably all heard. Um, the Rav Nirmalil used to have his uh, astronomical images on his, uh, in his office, and he used to show them to witnesses for the new moon to say, did you see it this way, or did you see it that way? Uh, once two witnesses come and they say that we saw the moon in the morning in the east and in the evening in the west, and Rabbi and Nuri says they must be lying. That's not the way. That's not the way the moon works. But when they come to Yavne, Rabbi Gamliel accepts them. Okay. Ambiguity here is: that Gamliel accepts them because he knows more, and he knows that there is a very rare occasion in which this can actually be the case. So I am told that my father-in-law is an expert in this. Or he knows right. Or he accepts them even though he knows that they're lying. There's a third possibility: R' Gamliel is just incompetent, but that seems to be very unlikely, since we introduced the story with R' Gamliel having um, astro- special astronomical expertise. Okay. And two other witnesses come, some other month presumably, but well, not necessarily, and they say we saw the moon when it's supposed to appear, and then the next the night after that it didn't appear. And R' accepts them also, even though once the moon appears, it's not right. Once the moon starts appearing, it's not supposed to disappear again so presumably the first appearance was, was false and Rabbi Joseph Ben-Arkinas says they're lying because it's like it's like claiming that a woman uh, that a woman gave birth without becoming uh, right the next day she's pregnant can't be that the moon appears and then disappears the next day that obviously wasn't the new moon if there was no moon the next day Rabbi Shua says Rabbi says Ben-Arkinas I think you're right and Rabbi Ben-Leal is wrong and now the question is what do we do? because Rabbi Ben-Leal has the power to declare the new moon, and he has declared the new moon. So now the calendar is set. We know when Yuntip is going to be. We know, right? We know all these things, right? It turns, it turns out it's going to be uh, in this case Rosh Chodesh Tishres. So we know when Rosh Hashanah is going to be. We know when Yom Kippur is going to be, and it's wrong. So what do we do when the halachic power structures make a mistake? So Rebbe uh, Um... Sorry, I seen it. There's a... <coughs> Rabbi, um, Rabbi Emliel sends a message to Rabbi Yeshua, not to Rabbi Dosia Ben-Arkinos, not to Rabbi Dosia, ben he sends a message to Yeshua, and he says, Rani alecha the v'maklicha v'motcha v'yom ha-kipurim shethaliyos <laughs> v'cheshboncha. Rabbi Emliel reacts astoundingly to Rabbi Yeshua just saying, I think you're right, Rabbi Dosia Ben-Arkinos, that, 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 um, that Rabbi Emliel is wrong. He says, I order you to show up in public... Being mechallel Yom Kippur on the day that you think is Yom Kippur. Now you read the story and you say, "Wow, that's a massive totalitarian overreaction." What's the worst that could happen? Rabbi Yeshua will keep his own yantuf if he thinks you're wrong. Let him do that. For all you know, he hasn't even right, He hasn't even done that yet. He just said, "I think you're wrong," and he actually just agreed. It was Rabbi Joseph ben Arkinos who said he was wrong. So why are we paying all this attention to Rabbi Yeshua? And yet, maybe Rabbi Gamaliel wasn't wrong, because it seems like Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua was not really going to, show, was not going to violate Yom Kippur at all. Probably Rabbi Yeshua was going to keep two days. And Rabbi Gamliel thinks this is utterly intolerable. Why? So now we discover so um, Rabbi Akiva goes around, and he finds, there's a dispute about who finds whom, but let's assume Rabbi Akiva finds Rabbi Yeshua feeling very sad about this decree of Rabbi Gamliel. Amar lo, as Rabbi Akiva says to him, Yezli l'mod, she kolma asar Rav Gamliel asui. I can teach that everything Rabbi Gamliel did about, um, is, is done. Sheh ne'mar, e'lemodeh Hashem um, ha-shir t'kru'u otam, ben which is written, haser says ha so, Rabbi Akiva says, "There's a drasha that says that the calendar is whatever it is declared to be by human beings, and it makes no it makes no difference whatsoever whether it's correct or not." Okay, so right, there are no checks and balances. Whatever the whatever whoever you grant halachic authority to has the absolute power, according to Rabbi Akiva, over what. Over the calendar. Right? Because there's a Pasukh, uh, it tem. So do they have power over anything else? No. Right? For example, could a Din declare that Shabbos is on Friday now or Sunday? No. No. Right? So there are limits. And all Rabbi Kibbutz drasha says is, you know what, Rabbi Shua, this is not the time to make a fuss, because when it comes to the calendar, whoever has power. Also has legitimacy. Okay. So then he goes to Ridosab and Arkinas because because Risho is apparently not so satisfied with Rabbi Akiva's answer. Ridosab and Arkinas says If we want to reevaluate Rabbi Gim-Lil's decision, we're going to have to reevaluate the decisions of every Beitin in history. Because the plastic says, why weren't the, the names of the of the others of expressed there, or it's explicit, uh, made explicit there? So Ridasabrachina seems to be making a much stronger claim. The claim he seems to be making is that power over Halacha always equals legitimacy. That if you ever challenge a if you ever challenge a decision that was reached by a valid process, and you claim that it could be illegitimate to follow it because it was an error, you'll have to challenge every decision made by anywhere in history, and then your whole concept of the authority of Masoret falls apart. So Joseph Ben says, "You know what, Rabbi Amlil was wrong, but the risk of challenging power is worse than the, is worse than the risk of getting it wrong." And this argument convinces Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua, He takes his his wall. He takes his wallet and his stick. And he goes to visit Rabbi on the day the Yom Kippur. Comes out on, according to his calculation, Rabbi stands up and kisses him on the head and tells him, Amarlo Boi Come in peace. Bo Beshalom, Sorry, Rabbi Bitalmiti, uh, My master and my student, Rabbi Bechachma my master in wisdom, but my student in that you accepted my words. Okay. Um, what do you think is Rebbe Gamliel's... What do you think the relationship between Rebbe and Rabbi Yeshua should be after this story? Yes, sorry, what's your name? Uh, Sam. Sam, yes. i mean, if you got wrong, you might have been I so, so you think your sure should be fine? More or less. Uh, it's quite tense. Tense. Yeah. And what do you think Reverend Lemuel's attitude should be now? Yeah. Upset. He's impeached. He's not impeached yet. Nothing happened no, yet. No, no, no. He, he's, if he's about to be impeached. He should be upset. But no, no one mentioned impeachment yet, right? Now everything's fine, right? You're jumping the gun. Um, You're jumping the gun. Embarrassed. Embarrassed because he was wrong. And then you know despite spiteful maybe that he was challenged by a student. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> so you know, right, even though Rav Gamaliel publicly engages in what looks like a beautiful gesture. right? He says to Rav I, ga- I grant that you're smarter than me, but I appreciate that you recognize that the system requires you to follow me anyway. But it sounds like it could be that this was a beautiful moment. And from now on, Rav Leo, when he's about to make a decision like that, he's going to look at Rabbi Gamaliel and say, hey, I remember that you're, that you're my Rebbe in wisdom, maybe I should take your advice this story could end really really happily Rabbi Yeshua could feel good that he was praised Rabbi Yil could feel good that his authority was unchallenged and it's a reasonable reading of the story except it fails to account for two things one is why didn't Rabbi Eliel ask Rabbi Yeshua in the first place why didn't he ask any of these people Right. Ramlil is making a mistake and there are all these people saying it. Right? They're saying it after he made the decision. In some cases, they said before he made the decision and there's no, there's no mention of a dialogue between them. So it sounds like Ramlil, at least previously, is making these decisions in a, right, in a narrow group of people. Right? Ramlil has, uh, has Facebook. And he's only friends with people who tell him what he wants and he's very surprised to discover that there are other people out there who are, uh, right, who, are dis- right, who are willing to disagree with him. And then we talked about at the beginning of that Rabbi sounds like he's engaged in a massive overreaction. What did Rabbi Yeshua do? He just said, I think that Rabbi Dose ben is right. Rabbi didn't react to Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri. Rabbi ben Nuri said he was wrong in the pre- first case. He didn't act to Rabbi Yochan ben Arkinus saying he was wrong in this case. What is it with Rabbi, Rabbi Amlil that he reacts this violently to Rabbi Yeshua? And if there's something going on to Ramalino de Yeshua, so then maybe the ending isn't as smooth as it looks. So in order to find it out, we'll go see are there other stories about Rabbi Gimliela and Rabbi Yeshua? So let's turn the page. And here's the story that's gonna look it's gonna look familiar, but it's probably not the story you know. so here's the story. Um Rabin Rabbi Sanuk Rabbi is also a Dana, he's a coin. And the rule, um, the rule, was, the rule is right, that um, Kohanim get to get the use of an animal that's a firstborn animal if the animal develops a moon. If the animal doesn't develop a blemish, it gets, it gets sacrificed um, in the Beit HaMikdash, and that creates a suspicion that Kohanim will deliberately create blemishes in their firstborn animals. Because of this, the rabbis made a decree that kohanim's, if Kohanim's animals get blemished, get blemished, we don't believe them that it happened accidentally. And we don't let them use the animal. Rabbi Sadov has a firstborn animal. And what he does is, he starts he feeds it in a kind of prickly basket. And guess what happens if an animal eats out of a prickly basket? It's it, gets a <laughs> on its, it gets a womb. It gets a boom, on its mouth. And guess what? This animal... Eat, right, this animal is eating and it gets a moon on its lips. Asal the Kamed Rabbi Shua. That was the fourth line on page two. So Rabbi Sadat comes before Rabbi Shua, Amar lay, and he says to him, Did we ever, did we distinguish between a chavir and amaritz? Anybody, what do the terms chavir and amaritz mean, inshallah? Amar is just a regular person. And a chavir is? Neighbor. Sahur doesn't mean friend. Chaver means a member of the rabbinic elite. They right? you belong socially to the class of very, very from people, and this is very distinct, right? You can the you know, halacha is divided into chaverim and ame For example, you all sing you will chaverim Israel chaverim Israel doesn't mean all Jews are friends. It means all Jew, It means that there are periods of the year when, in order to enable people to eat, not eat nor, or, normally chaverim could not eat easily from the fruits of ame because ame didn't take. And masras, at least not Masros. But during the Shalish the rabbis declared kol Yisrael, that all Jews would take Masros, and therefore, therefore, uh, right, therefore, and um, could eat together. Um, so, the, right, but these are very distinct classes. So, Ritara's question when he says, Khum Chilakdu ben his question is, when we said we don't trust Kohanim, does that mean we don't trust Kohanim like us? No, couldn't have meant that. It must have meant that we don't trust Kohanim or Ameyaretz. But Kohanim, like me, I obviously would never do anything that would cause my animal a bloom, and therefore I can use my animal, right? And Yeshua sure says, Hey, yeah. You're right. But, I mean, Tzedek wasn't sure that that would work well enough for whatever reason, so he goes to a wheel. Amar le'echilak debidah chavir la'amaretz. Amar le'erga amaliyah lo. Ramil says no. The rule applies equally to all Kohanim whether or not they are members of the, of the Kavir class. Amar le'erga amaliyah lo. And Rav Yishua says to him, Rabbi Yishua said yeah. So Rav Yishua, why are you telling me no? Rabbi Shua said yes. So Amar le'erga lo. So Rav says to him, hamten achi alub Late Tracing lo'vet midrash. Wait until the shield carriers... Come to the Beit Midrash. No one knows what the shield bearers are. No other reference. Except in this story and the next one, there's no other reference to, to who shield bearers may be. We'll perhaps uh, put out a theory at the end. But Ramlil says, wait till the shield bearers come. When they enter the Beit Midrash, the, the questioner, who's Rabbi Sado, gets up and says, Kum ben And Rabbi Shua says, No. Ramlil says, But what? But Rabbi Sado just told me, Yes. Yeshua. You told me yes. Stand up and let's find out whether you're you telling me the truth now or not. Amar says, "What am I supposed to do?" If I were living and he did, well, then the living can contradict the dead. But now that I'm alive and he's alive, how can the living contradict the living? So R' really goes go on teaching. is standing on his feet the entire time. Until everybody tells the person who's repeating rabbi <coughs> the way they gave Shirim was that the, the, rabbi, the rabbi whispered something to the microphone standing next to him, the human microphone, and the human microphone would bellow it out. So chutzpitz was the name of the human microphone, and the, um, and the people told chutzpitz stop talking. So when Leil was whispering, nobody could hear the Shir, so the Shir ended. And that way Rabbi Shua got to leave. Okay. So this is a very odd story. There are lots of things you don't understand about it. One is... Why does Rabbi Yeshua lie? Why does Rabbi Amleel make such a big deal out of it? Why does Rabbi Amleel just pocket the concession? If in public he's saying what I say, so why do not Amleel just pocket the concession? Why does he confront him? What on earth is Rabbi Yeshua doing when he says, If, the limit, if I were alive and he were live Like, what? <laughs> Nobody asks you for poetry. That's explained, right? Did you tell the truth or lie? And what happens at the end of the story? The people tell Kutbis HaMaturgeman to stop, and he stops. But presumably, the next day, what happens? Everything goes back to normal. It's a a one-day demonstration. But now we have two cases where Gamaliel seems to have radically overreacted to Rabbi Yeshua. Okay, let's go on. Go on to the third story, which probably you've heard, which you'll notice is literally just about identical, to what we just right. read, on page three. All right, so the, the rabbi's taught, is a story of a student who came to Rabbi Yeshua, and he asked him, is Marev, Rishus, right, where um, a Choba is it permissible or obligatory, and Rabbi Yeshua says, it's only Rishus, right, and he comes to Rabbi Gamliel, and he asks the same question, rabbi says, it's an obligation, and he says, oh, but Rabbi Yeshua told me it was a Rishus, so says, wait till the shield bearers come to the base measures. And the shield bearers come and the person gets up and says, Shilas Mar Vishus or Khoven. Rabbi Shui says, Hovam. And Ringliel says, hey, but they just told me to say Vishus. And Abishua gets up and gives the same speech. If I were alive and he were alive, blah blah blah. And Rumaliel says, Ringalil um, says, Stand on your feet and they'll testify against you. And Ramil goes on giving sheer. And Rabishua ends up standing on his feet until the people tell Khutpis the Maturgaman, stop. And he stops. And this time the story doesn't end. Okay, so I would pick it up at the with the, the material, which uh, begins the non-bold face on page three. Amri, so some group of people, we don't know who they are, said, "Ad kaman how long will Rabbi Yehuda go on um, being cruel to Rabbi Yeshua?" On Rosh Hashanah, the first story read in the Mishnah, "Eshdaq he was cruel to him. He made him come right and violate what he thought was really Yom kippur. That's what we just read, right? Rangamliel made him stand on his feet and right, confronted him and confronted him publicly. Here he does it again. Let's impeach him. Okay, so this is the this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the third time that Rangamliel is being cruel to Rabbi Yeshua. and the people say enough of this. Okay. Then they have a conversation. They say, okay, if we're going to impeach him, well, who's going to replace him? It could be, we could appoint Rabbi Yoshua, but that would make it look political. Uh, you can't have an impeachment. The political right has to be, what's the word? Bipartisan. Right, so even if there are parties in the Beit you have to make sure that the person who replaces Rogan Leo is not, part of, is not part of a faction that would be suspected of replacing him out of self-interest. Okay, what about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva has no family, so he has no political base of his own, so Rabbi Amlil will just be able to destroy him. Okay, what about Elizabeth Nazaria? Elizabeth Nazaria is rich and wise, and has ethos. Okay, so let's, right, let's appoint Elizabeth Nazaria. So this sounds like a great move, except only one problem. Do you know what the big problem is? Elizabeth Nazaria is? Young. No. Eighteen years old, <laughs> whatever, right? So, so they tell Raza, so they go to of Nazar. We're now in <laughs> the last part of page three, and they say, "Do you want to be Rosh Hashiva?" And he says, "Azel say, I'm going to go home and ask my household whether I want to be Rosh Hashiva or not, or really be nasi or not, to right? make it be president or not. Azal so he goes home and really only he only wants one person's advice, and that's his wife. And she says, you know, you can't trust people who impeach presidents. They just set a precedent. They're going to impeach you too. So he says, you know what? If I have this expensive glass vessel, I'd rather use it and let it break than never use it. It's worth it being Rosh for the day. Um, right? So she says, you have no white hair. They're never going to respect you. Right? So how right? that day he was 18 years old. A miracle happens. And he develops eighteen rows of um of white hair, and that's what the I gotta read reading the gata, Rabbi Rabbi um Rabbi Shruit sa early Elizabeth already says a rainy seventy, but not really seventy. Okay? You could wonder about that because somebody else says it too. It's probably not what it means, it probably means I'm a, around seventy. But for the purpose of this story, uh Elizabeth is already 18. Okay, anybody notice anything interesting about this story? What did Elizabeth already do? Do when he, when he was asked whether he wanted to be a Rosh He hesitated. He hesitated and said, What do I have to do? That's my way. And then he went to his wife, what did she say? No. And what did he do? He did it. Yeah, right. Aha. Elizabeth Nazaria is an interesting person. Uh, how does Elizabeth Nazaria compare to Rabbi Gamliel? What does Rabbi Gamliel do? He does what he wants without asking people. Lozabin Azariah asks them first. And then? Still does does what he wants. Lozabin Azariah is an interesting person. Interesting person. And you could be suspicious and say that why did they really appoint Reb Rebbe Lozabin Azariah? Because he's young. And what do people do? Why do people appoint very young leaders? especially when they don't think those young leaders are the first person for the job. They can control them. They think they can control them. And if you're a young leader, what are you supposed to do when people pull it on you? You're supposed to ask their advice and then ignore it. So we have to have this a very clever, uh, very realistic political depiction of what happens here, where Elizabeth Azaria gets appointed, and his wife points out essentially... They only want you as a figurehead. If you disagree with them, they'll impeach you too, because you're so young. But a miracle happens, and he grows up. And the way in which he reacts with his wife, he relates to his wife, tells you very much how he's going to relate to them as well. Okay, I want to just begin that, because I want you to read this story. Right? This is a story about politics. There are politics in Bhatay Midrash. Maybe not this one. But there are politics in Bhatay Midrash. Um, before Yeshiva Haratzion and tzion, the Berkat Moshe came along, no one believed that you could have a Yeshiva with two Rosh Yeshiva um, because they were all split. It's an impressive thing. Okay, so now let's see what happens. Um, okay, so they right so becomes I mean, Rosh We turn the page to page four. On that day, they they get rid of the door the door and they let the students enter the Beit Midrash because when Lil used to proclaim publicly any student whose inside doesn't match their outside cannot enter the Beit Midrash so you have two things about this first of all who are these students who are not being let in who is being let in if students aren't being let in two so, outside to, how does a guard distinguish the insides of people from their outsides? So you could have one of my high school classes at one point you know, suggested a you know, spiritual x-ray machine that everyone had to pass through on the way to the Midrash so and the guard could look at their souls and decide if their insides matched their outside. That doesn't seem so practical. Um, a second possibility is where Gamaliel was simply wrong. And he thought he could tell, but he couldn't. Uh, and what really and right, all the guard had was a list of people who had been pre-approved. Okay, right. That's a that's a possibility. A third possibility is that there are lots of people who decree I want to make sure that people's insides match their outsides. But almost always, the only thing they can check is people's outsides. Maybe the guard was checking. Maybe the guard was checking that as well. So I think it's most likely that we had a list and. Um, I wrote this up as a play, So I suggested that the right answer to shield bearers were that Galileo students all had shields on their on on their school uniforms, and so only people who admit, who made it into Galileo's group were allowed to wear the pins, and the guard was just checking your ID. Okay, so that day they get rid of all they get rid of all the um, all of the guard, and everybody can come in. So lots of benches get added. Some people, right, the Rabbi Yochanan says, Rabbi maybe 400 benches, maybe 700 benches, have a gets depressed. Amar, Dil Machas v'Shalom, anate Torah mi'Israel. He says, maybe I kept Torah out of Israel. All these people wanted to learn Torah, and I kept them out. Okay, here we have one of my favorite moments in the entire talk. <laughs> so Rebbe Gamliel has a dream which is shown to him from heaven. In that dream he has these really beautiful barrels with just ashes inside them. Which are also white which builds up Rabbi Gamliel which pulls over Rebbe Nazaria's uh, white hair. Now let's point out, Rebbe Nazaria replaces Rabbi Gamliel. What's the one thing about you know, you know about of Nazaria now? two things you know about you know that he has white hair right and the white hair is on the outside but inside he's really so is replaced by somebody whose insides he thinks don't match his outsides right although it it may be ironic because Elizabeth Nazario really has the wisdom of somebody 70 who looks 18 instead he turns into somebody who looks 70 Daronglil still thinks he's eighteen, and Ranglil has a dream from heaven, which tells him that the the white, right, the white fakes that that the white, of the white represents falseness, and he was right that all these students who get in, all these students are just ashes, in pretty clothing. And an amazing thing happens in the Gemara. Gemara says Elohim. but it's not true. Even though God sent Rav the dream, God sent Rav a false dream. God liked Rav enough to send him a false dream. But really the students weren't, fought, weren't, weren't ashes. The students were just as good as all the other students. This was a great moment for, this was a great moment for Torah. Torah is expanded. And so we would think Rabbi Gamliel must really be the bad guy. All the way through. He overreacted to Rabbi Yeshua. He was cruel to Rabbi Yeshua. He tried to run Halacha in a dictatorial fashion. Cheers for the impeachment of Rabbi Gamliel. When Arilu is impeached, the walls of the Beit Midrash are thrown open. We're going to find out in a moment that this is one of the great days of the one of the great days in Torah. And yet, there's this one niggling doubt, which is that God loves Rabbi Arilu enough to send him a false dream. Okay, what happens? So we learn the Masat, all of idea, or all these testimonies about lost traditions, right, were recovered on that day. And every time it says Bo anywhere in Tanakh literature, it means that day. And there was not a single halacha left. Right? This was the greatest day in the history of Torah. Right? Every single question was answered. And all this would have been prevented by Rehag and Leal. But God doesn't let him know. And guess what? Now we have the moment that Rehag and Liel seems to redeem himself. Rehag and Leal Rang doesn't leave, even though he's been impeached, he doesn't leave the Beit Midrash. All those students are there, and he's there the entire time. Okay, and we have this story. Okay, Yehuda Ger-Amoni come, right, comes in front of the Beit Midrash, and he says, "Well, can I can I marry into Jewish people?" The Torah says Leavol <laughs> Moni says, "You're not allowed to enter." So we know something happened, right? Normal, right? In all the other stories, who spoke first? Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua why? Because the person without power is always supposed to speak first, so as not to be intimidated by the person with power. But now Ramila has no power. So he speaks first. Rabbi Yeshua says, He says, no, you're fine. So Rabbi brings it right. Says there's a pasuk. Rabbi Shula says, "Yeah, but that pasuk's not true because Sankara wiped wipe them all out." And Rabbi says another pasuk. Rabbi Shula quotes that pasuk. At the end of the story, we say after Rabbi response, Miyad he tiru levobakol." Rabbi just loses. We all say Rabbi right because it's open all the right, It's open all the barriers. Get rid of all the immigration barrier. Date. <laughs> right. We let everyone into the base. Better. We let everyone into the Jewish people. We're hope free. Ragam going the exclusionary exclusionary policies are gone Okay, Rangel Mill says I'm Rangel since that's the case, um, is Zilverd Faisal a bit Let me go let me go um let me go uh a piece of When he comes to his house, the Zilan the de Veste de Meshahran, he sees that Rabish's house has black walls. Amarlo, we From the walls of your house, it seems that you are a pechami. A pechami is one of two things. It could be a blacksmith, which is a manual labour but you know, but respectable. Or it could be that you sell charcoal. And it looks at assurance that and says, It sounds it looks from your house it looks like you're a it looks like you're a charcoal. You know, what kind of, what kind of, why would you say such a thing? Oh, like when you look up in someone's house and say, oh my goodness, it looks like you're a charcoal seller. Because you don't expect it. You don't expect it. And Emil shows show his house and expects something very different than the cottage of a manual laborer or a desperately impoverished man. And Rabbi Yeshua turns to him and snaps. He says, Oilo le Dor Shataparneso. Woe to the woe to the generation that has you as leader." Shei atayudei v'zera told me that she'll chachamim. You don't know the, the suffering. El tamini tell me nis <laughs> chachamim. Vamei nizonim. Right? How they are support how they are supported and how they feed themselves. And finally, Rabbi Yeshua gets to tell Rabbi Leil off. He won that. Right? Rabbi Leil is impeached because he was cruel to Rabbi Yishau. Now Ragam loses halachic arguments, and now he comes to Rav Yeshua to appease him, and Rabbi, right, but he blows it. Because the first thing he says to Rav Shua is not, I'm sorry, but, oh my goodness, you're poor. And Rav Yeshua yells at him. Now Rav Gamliel says, Okay, you're right, forgive me. And Rav says, what? Why? So everybody else says, I don't know, this is a fascinating thing, he says, Forgive me for the honor of my father. And everybody says, am on page five, right? Show says, oh sure. Right? Sure. For your father's sake, that's absolutely fine. Okay, then so we know there's the um, scene in Pirates of Penzance, when the pirates have defeated the entire, you know, the, the British Constabulary, and as they, they're about to kill them, the get up and they say, We charge you yield in the name of Queen Victoria. And, right, and then the pirates all yield because of all our faults, we love our queen. So that's Rabbi Yeshua. At the end of the day, with all his faults, he loves and father, ancestor. That's a weird thing. Rabbi Rabbi Yeshua has such respect for that. Okay. Now another thing happens, right? So we're on page five now. So they say, who's going to tell the rabbis, the Rabbi Yeshua? Who's going to tell the rabbis? By the rabbis, they mean the other rabbis who are now... And now in charge of the Beit Midrash. Who's going to tell them that Rabbi Shuva really made up? So So a washerman shows up and says, Me? I'm going to go. So Rabbi Shodron sends him to the Beit Midrash, probably with a message, although maybe he doesn't accept himself. And here's what he says: The person who wears the cloak shall wear the cloak. The person who never wore the cloak. Yamarlebi the man the lavish man shall tell the person who wears the cloak shalach b'tchav Al Boshe, take off your clothes and I should wear them. What? You can sort of figure out that what it means is we should let Leo back. But like, what? Why did you say? Hey, they made up. Amarla Rabbi Akiva the rabban Rabbi Akiva says to the rabbis troku Gali, close the gates. Let the service, not come bother us. So the rabbis don't find that made up. Say so Yeshua says, "Oh, better I should go myself." And he goes. He knocks on the door. He knocks on the door. Amar, he says to them, so he has a new metaphor. Right? If the right, should the right, the coin gadol is the one who gets to sprinkle the to sprinkle the the, the waters of the of the paraduma. Should somebody who hasn't right, somebody who's not the child of the coin gadol come to say the person who's currently coin gadol? Hey, your paraduma's waters are fake. Amar says Nis Right, you've right, you've you've made up. We only did this for your sake. Tomorrow, you and I are going to go to Reb- Leo's house, and then they go to Reb- Leo, and the next day they try to figure out what do we do, and they come up with this beautiful compromise solution that they're going to keep Ramil Reb- Ezra Reb- and Ramil Reb- both in place. Okay, just Ramil Reb- gets to be in charge three weeks, and Ramil Ezra only gets to lecture once, once, give the big lecture once every four weeks. Okay. Do you think that that's the right ending? Mm. Yeah, not okay. bad. Yeah? Why? Why don't we just get rid of him? Really, that was cruel. Just because he apologizes, he gets his job back. Must have been more than that.
1: There must be something more
0: than that, right? If you think this is the right answer, there must be something more than that. There must be something more than that. So I think. If, if any you, um, have, you, have any of you? Any of you read Animal Farm? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So remember the climactic scene at the end, right? Where, after all these days, we've been saying uh, two legs bad, four legs good. All of a sudden we start saying, no, two, right, right, two legs, uh, four legs good, two legs also good, right? And there's a moment where you're looking, this is, well, to say lahabdul, but I think to get the story you have to think it up that way. You think, right, the pigs turn into humans. And you get to find it out because the, you know, the, the pigs are turned into humans because they're willing to send the horse to the knackers, right? So they're not any better than the humans were. Okay, what was the great flaw of Rav Namliel's policy? That he kept Torah out of the base medrash. And he had a guard at the door, and he assumed that people who didn't look like the students he wanted had no Torah to contribute. The day after Rabbi Galil is impeached, a washerman shows up at the door with a message for the rabbis. And what did the rabbis, the new rabbis, in charge do? No, what do they do? They don't let him in. They say lock the doors. Why should we lock the doors? We should lock the doors because we don't need any servants of Rabban Gamliel here. They took a look at this kovis, and they said he can't have anything to say. He's just a servant. Why would we have servants in the Beit Midrash? So there's no point in featuring Rambam Leel. In the end, because all you do is change the group in charge. In the end, everyone looks down on someone. So the best solution is to put them right in some kind of collective group, so that everybody has an advocate to let themselves into the Beit Midrash. So maybe that's the right story. But, there's things we haven't explained yet. We haven't explained, how does this, how did all this start? Why did really react this way to Rabbi Shua? So we'll try to explain that quickly. I want to point out one thing, and this, to me, when I first realized that this was a, uh, this was an issue you should ask about, I got it was pretty transformative. The cool thing about the way this story is constructed is that, it tells you that two other stories which appear elsewhere in the Talmud, they're not connected, right? They're not connected. The story in Rosh Hashanah and the story in Toros aren't right. They're not, right. There's no obvious connection to the story in Brakut. But the narrator in Brakut says, oh, by the way, this is the third time Ramamil did it, and refers to him. So he says, I can tell you, when I have three stories in the Talmud, I can tell you what order they took place in. Now, when you're writing a novel or a play, a character study. So obviously it makes a difference which order the events happen in. But usually, the Gemara doesn't tell us which order the stories took place in. But now we know to ask that question. Now we can ask ourselves, so there are lots and lots and lots and lots of stories about Rabbi and Gamliel. What order do they take place in? Maybe I construct a, sto- a narrative arc about Rabbi Shur, Rung, and Gamliel in which everything about them makes sense because it happens in a particular way. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to teach you what I think is the story that happened first. And I think that if you understand the story that happened first, then a lot about the rest of the story will uh, will make sense. Okay, so take a look at page six. Um, so there's a... Ravashi makes a statement. It says even according to the person who says that a Rav, whose mochel is kavod, if forgiveness his honor, the kavod works, Nasi who is whose is kavod, that kavod does not work. Well, he says, no, I'll prove to you, right, I'll prove to you that's wrong, I'll prove to you that, in the, um, that even Nasi, perhaps, can be mokel his kavod, or maybe not. Let's figure out what the story is. So here's the week, and then we get our story. Here's the story. Maaseh Reb Lezer, Reb Yeshu, there's a story about Rav Elazar, Rav We've met them all before, right? They're the characters in our other stories. They're sitting at a at a wedding of Rav Gamliel's son. Okay, let's make an assumption that they're sitting at the at the wedding of Rav Gamliel's first son, and Rav is still young. Now we have to know something in the background. Anybody know? Rav forgives Rav Gamliel for the sake of his father's honor. Does anybody know what Ramaliel's father, Nasi? Who was the Nasi before Rabbi Anybody know? No. The answer is Nasi Ramaliel is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai, not Ramaliel's father. Why? Because the Beit got destroyed. And there was a crisis. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai was the person equal to the crisis. So the hereditary Nisiut vanished for several generations. And Rabbi, Yochan, Rabbi is not actually the carrier of an ancient consecutive tradition of Nesuit. Rabbi Galil is the first person restored to the Nisyut. Right? It's when the family of Hill is restored to the Nisyut. And Rabbi Galil is young. And guess what? Rabbi Galil is almost certainly not the best scholar in the Beit Midrash. No one thinks he is. They know who it is. It's probably Rabbi Yeshua. Maybe it's Rabbi Akiva. So Rehagim starts his misuse because people think it's time to return to normal. But he has other people in the Beit Midrash whom he knows can legitimately think that this should be a meritocracy and they should have it also. And now his son is getting married and he makes a wedding. And what does he do? Rehagim serves drinks. At the, at the party. Okay. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? Mm-hmm. Nobody watched Downton Abbey. Really interesting. Okay. So if you happen to be interested in that kind of thing, you know that the host is not supposed to serve the drinks when there are servants. And people of higher class are not supposed to serve drinks to people of lower class. Right? The master of the house is not supposed to serve drinks to the servants. But here's the thing the master of the house. Off is, is, is often supposed to try to serve drinks for the servants. Because that way he shows that he doesn't think that his social position is a product of him being better, it's just the nature of the role he plays. And what are the servants supposed to do? Refuse it. Refuse it. Right? And that's how proper social order is maintained, right? where the master is not arrogant, and the servants are not uppity. Right, that's what really what condescension is supposed to be. Condescension is a positive in a class in a class society. Okay, so here's a real serving on him. Nathan Kos Rebel Ezer, Below Kibla, he gives a Kos Rebel right, who's not the Nasi, right? He's a new Nasi, so now he's he's newly the highest love, the highest social status in the land, he offers a drink to Rebel Yezer, who's you know one of the elders of the of the age, whom yesterday he would have been serving as an underling. And Rebel Yezer properly says no. He hands it to Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Yeshua takes the drink. And then, early Ezra yells at Rabbi Amalil, and says, What are you doing Rabbi Amlil? You're not supposed to serve drinks, you're not see." And Rabbi Yeshua says, What are you talking about? I have a story in Chumash, where Avram Get, meets these random people he thinks are random merchants and he serves them drinks and Avram is certainly the nasi of his generation and if Avram can serve nasi to people like that well then Rabbi Leel can serve drinks to people like me. There are a couple of things going on in the story. One is, Rabbi Yezir is showing formal kabut to Rabbi Gamliel but he's not showing respect for him because he calls him out in public. What are you doing serving drinks? And Rabbi Yeshua takes the drink. If I were Rebbe Wheel, and I just started my Nisyids, and I'm trying my best to show that I'm not uppity. And uh, even though it's a hereditary position and I really, I really, I'm not the best, but I want to show that really you guys, you guys are better than me, I just have the position because it's important for someone with my family to be in the position. And then somebody takes the drink, I would spend the rest of my life assuming they're gunning to impeach me. And when they do things, when they challenge, when they challenge me, and they ask, you know, and they, they challenge my authority over the calendar, and right, I go ballistic because I know they're running against me. I know they don't respect me. Okay, now we know why God loves Rami Lemliel. Because Rami nonetheless, keeps trying. Right, right? he kisses Rabbi Yeshua. On the right, he keeps trying. He gives Rabbi Shua every opportunity to the right in public. And yet, so and yet, Rabbi Yeshua seems to be really, really popular. And people love him. Why would Rabbi Yeshua have done something like this? So here's the thing. Remember Rabbi Leel had a rule? And the rule was that any student whose inside doesn't match their outside, can't enter the Beit Nidrash. And we saw that one symbol of that was Rabbi Lezar ben Azariah in his new role, whose inside didn't match his outside. Well, what happened when Rabbi, when Rabbi Leel came to Rabbi Yeshua's house? What was he? Surprised. He was surprised because he thought Rabbi Yeshua was rich, like everybody else in their day school. It was utterly shocking! Utterly shocking! To come to Rabbi Yeshua's house and discover that he was poor. Meaning that Rabbi Yeshua's inside didn't match his outside. Not morally. Because that wasn't Rabbi Emile knew how to judge. Rabbi Yeshua didn't belong to the class of people and thought was the people who could really be rabbis. All of their relationship, throughout their life, Rabbi Yeshua comes to the church every day expecting the guard not to let him in because Rabbi Miel found out. Okay, and he's and he's worried because what happens when you don't grow up in a class? You don't get the social cues. So Rang Rabbi Shua has never been in the social world of Rang Leo, And so Rang offers him the drink. He doesn't know he's not supposed to take it. And then when he takes it, right, afterwards, everyone's going to tell him, wow, what did you do that for? So the whole relationship between Rabbi Shua and Rabbi Amlil starts off because Rabbi Amlil has a rule which makes him assume that everyone around him knows exactly what everything he does means. And Rabbi Shua doesn't. So Rabbi Amlil spends his whole career thinking that Rabbi Shua is out to get him. And Rabbi Shua spends his whole career correctly believing that Rabbi, Amlil, that Rabbi Amlil would expel him if he ever found out who he really was. Now, Remember Yeshua talks this weird poetry? And as one of the persons talks the weird poetry, that weird poetry is, is the co-base. Rebbe Yeshua sends to the male. So if you look at, in Gemara Sukkah, which I didn't give you all Sukkah, it says, Rebbe and Zakkai and Abeliezer each learned everything there is to learn under the sun. And it gives you a list of all the odd things they learned. They learned uh, what day trees say to each other. And, uh, and they learned parables of foxes. Do you know what parables of foxes means? Aesop's Fables. They also learned something called the Parables of Washerman. Kovsim. What are the parables of Kovsim? So I want to suggest it. Kovsim, we know from other Gemaras, are the lowest of the low socially. Parables of Kovsim is a special way that the poor had of talking to each other. And so I imagine this as a play. Kovsim talk kakmi. Right, a special lower class Petwa. But in the Vesvedrish, they talk the King's English. But when Rav gets nailed to the wall, Rav Gamliel in public, he reverts. That's why Rav talks the exact same way that the what right that the washerman does. That's why Rav is so popular, because Rav Gamliel doesn't know. But Rav goes home. All the people in his neighborhood know he's poor. Everyone knows he's the one person going into the Venidrash. So the whole conversation between Radish, between Shoram and Leal, the whole relationship is governed by the initial establishment of a class structure, which then means that, either, that the two of them misunderstand each other and the relationship is at loggerheads their entire life because of that. Each of them can be a great person, each of them deserves God's love, each of them is a great person. Base Medrash but the only base Medrash that really works is the one that finds a way to let them both in as they both really are at the same time ok so we've got to end the story ha- I'm glad that has a happy ending so we edit page 6 here we go this I think is the last story ok so the story you okay, so had a Rabbi Shua Rabbi Azali Bis Vinasa Rabbi Shua we're going on a boat Rangam had bread Rabbi had bread and flour Pita Vesolta Shalim pitted Rebbe Gamliel, but the trip lasts longer than they expect. So Rebbe bread runs out. Samich assaulted Rabbi Yeshua. So Rebbe Gamliel has to rely on Rabbi Yeshua's flour. Not only that, but he's really starving. Because bread, right? Because bread bread spoils. Rabbi Yeshua brought flour, which is nice for everyone. So turns to him and says, sol tzulta. How did you know that the ship would be delayed, that like you brought flour? I guess Rabbi Shua says, Rabbi Shua says there's a star that comes up every 70 years which misleads the mariners. And I knew it was going to right and I said to myself, maybe that star is going to come up and so I took X-ray. In the end, Rabbi Shua saves Rabbi Gamliel is poor because he has no food and he's forced to rely on Rabbi, on Rabbi Shua's superior astronomical knowledge. Which he does with good grace. And he says to him, you have so much, and yet you end up having... You, you, right, you have to travel on boats. Why don't you stay in the big and Let your wisdom... I, don't really have to do it because of politics. That's why probably running wheels in Rome. Rebbe Shua, probably, right? So he has to go in business. Ramelay, he says to him, right? While you're, right, you're astonished at me, I have two students in dry land, that they know how to measure the, the drops of water in the ocean. But they have no bread and they have no clothing to wear, so they're poor. What does Rambam do? Natan daatam shivam says, "I can solve that. I'll give them government jobs. I'll put them in charge, even though they're poor." And Rebbe says, um, Rabbi Shua, um, "So he, said, so when, he so when he comes, so he comes to Rambam. sends a message to these two students of Rabbi Shua <laughs> and and Come! Join join my administration. And they refuse. And Amrilo sends them a message. He says, Do you think that by putting you in charge, I'm actually putting you over people? Such that that you're going to turn it down because you don't think it's worth the moral price of of joining the upper class? I'm making you servants of the people. So the end of the story is, that Leo realizes his mistake with his his mistake in having set up a class barrier to Torah, uh, acknowledges, Rabbi, Yeshua, acknowledges Rabbi, Yeshua's, um, Rabbi Yeshua's wisdom, is willing to appoint people who are poor to be in charge, and understands fully that to be in charge is not to be the boss, but to be the servant. Um, so the story ends happily, but I think that what you get is that um, Rami is, is in a superb choice for Nasi because he has the capacity to admit error, he has the capacity to learn from his mistakes, and he really is capable of separating what he does as what he does for the position and how he feels personally. And that I think the model that we have for Torah first of all is not you know don't believe, don't believe that personal issues don't play out in Torah don't believe you know, it's, ter, people in charge of Torah are subject to the same as everyone else in terms of what power and class and, and the money do to you, but it, it is possible in the end to build a fully, fully inclusive Bit Midrash in which everyone can be who they are. Thank you for listening and I hope that uh, we'll hear lots from you in the future.